I hope that you all are, are again, are, are doing well, and I hope that you've had a, a, a good week, especially now as our weather's changing and it's getting nice, and so enjoy it now, despite the pollen, before it gets to be a billion degrees outside. If you would, go ahead and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. Our passage this morning in Nehemiah 5 is, remember, within the context of hardship, in the context of rebuilding the walls around the city of uh, Jerusalem, living under the threat of the enemy, keeping hold of the sword, and working with the trowel. But now the hardship that they are going to face, or we're going to see in chapter 5, will continue, but not just from outward oppressors, but from inward oppressors. You know, after the establishment of the church in the first century, when the apostles had already passed on, for the most part, the church continued to flourish under the gospel despite great persecution. Now, when I mean great persecution, I mean great persecution. Persecution of death, persecution of being crucified, persecution of losing your homes, persecution of being arrested, losing everything, being kicked out of your family. Uh, kind of persecution that still happens today, but yet this was very widespread as Christianity was not accepted within Rome. Tolerated a little bit in the first century, but over time was not. And this lasted for a while. Enemies of the church, however, could not thwart the growth of the church. Though many saints and martyrs prospered, though they died. They couldn't stop the, the spread of the gospel. They couldn't sp stop the, the spread of the church throughout the, the known world. The church flourished and grew under the persecution of death. It's one of the great lines of one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, was the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. They could not stop the church from flourishing and growing. The evil one could not destroy the church from the outside, and the tactic changed. Rome began to accept the church now. Right? There's things that happened. There's political things that went down in, in, in the history of the, of the church, but then the church began to be accepted within society, within Rome, and then Christianity actually became the religion of Rome. Everything then at that point, I mean, was great. I mean, they had money, they had position, they had societal and political influence it began to grow and grow. I mean, what excuse now does the church have for not growing? But what began to take place? Internal strife false teachers, false doctrines spread, corruption had invaded the church, growth and missions had slacked off. You see here in Nehemiah, 
when it seems as if the oppressors were the only enemies that they had, and they were, be able, to, they were able to uh, hold off these uh, oppressors by God answering their prayer and Nehemiah leading them uh, appropriately, what we will see now in chapter 5 is that they are inside oppressors, and these inside oppressors could actually be far more damaging to the people than outside especially to the corrupting of the work that was trying to take place. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 5 together. Start reading, we'll start reading in verse 1 through 13. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain, and we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. There were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6, I was very angry, this is Nehemiah, when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles, and the officials, I said to them, you are exacting interests each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not say and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are leading them, excuse me, lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exact exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. Will you do as you say? We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from this house and from his labor, who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. 
It seems like now, with each passing day, there is another cultural icon, person, movie, character, book, author, TV personality, even words that are so, so offensive that they need to be erased or canceled. That's the new terminology, canceled. The oppression that these things must have, or these people must represent, must be so atrocious and so bad that we must completely erase from our memories, from our phones, from our digital libraries, from our libraries, the notion of such evil things. Actress Gina Serena, fired from The Mandalorian, the show The Mandalorian, the most popular show on TV. The dastardly, the worst, Mr. Potato Head. No longer Mr. And not to mention his wife, Mrs. Potato Head, or Miss Potato Head. They're gone. They're just now Potato Head. Not to mention, and I shouldn't really say this out loud because of how offensive it is, the Washington Redskins. They are no more just the team the football team in Washington. The Cleveland Indians, they're gone. They're just Cleveland baseball people. I don't know what their new name will be. How about the Lando Lakes icon? She's gone. Mrs. Butterworth, deleted, scrubbed. Uncle Ben's rice, that dude's gone. He didn't have a chance. Not to mention some of the things we've heard about Dr. Seuss in the latest couple of days. He's terrible. The very offensive cartoon character, Pepe Le Pew, he's not erased because he stunk, but because of other reasons. Maybe one you haven't heard of is the famous gentleman, Booker T. Washington. His autobiography from slavery. If you don't know the story of Booker T. Washington, I encourage you to read his story. His experience as a, as a slave is now being considered fiction. It's just a story. And the word normal is now being removed by some companies because of how oppressive normality must be. Now, clear-minded people who can think know that a lot of this, the things that I just said, are just stupid, moronic, it's nonsense. However, as thinking Christians, we must understand that there is a such thing as real oppression. There is real injustice, and there are real unfair condescending, sinful stereotypes in a fallen world. We understand that. 
and yet we know we should not participate in them. And honestly, all of those goofy things that I just mentioned just take away from the real conversation and the real issues that need to be dealt with completely. I don't think anyone really wants to deal with the real issues. We live in a fallen world filled with spiritually dead people. And we know that when given the power, the authority, the position, people will take advantage of other people for their gain. That's nothing new. We know that. History is well replete as well as the present is filled with examples of real people oppressing other people for their own gain, for their own financial gain. We could be here all day talking about this last year. It's as old as time itself. And in our passage this morning, as we have read, Nehemiah, who sounds more like a, a prophet, confronts Israel on their blatant sin, their unjust treatment of the poor, the taking advantage of them financially. Something has been broken, and the whole group of people, a whole group of people, are being left behind in abject poverty, teetering on generational poverty at the hands of their own brothers. So this morning, I want us to unpack the text first of what's happening in verses 1 through 5. What's the problem? What's the offense? What's the accusations, the complaint that's being made by this one group against this other group? And second, we're going to look at Nehemiah's response to the offense and the restitution that he sets before them, as well as Nehemiah's reply of judgment and warning. And lastly, I want us to consider how we as Christians are to respond to texts and passages like this. What does this mean for us, and what does it teach us, and how should it be applied to us? So first there is this complaint, and in verse 1 it says that there was an there was an outcry that arose from the people, from their wives, from the, these whole families, had these complaints against these other Jewish brothers, against these other Jewish brothers. I mean, it says very specifically, brothers there in verse 1. And instantly, when we see something like this, the way that verse 1 is written out, we should understand that, that what's being said here and what's about to come is not good. That this is, this is not good. And it's a situation that if it's not dealt with soon, it's going to cause massive issues. Internal strife is not good. The complaints that are made are serious. And they must be dealt with. The first complaint, verse 2. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So here seems to be the issue in complaint number one. The people are working on the wall. 
They're working on the wall. And it's been maybe about two months now of working on the wall. But however, these people are at risk of losing their own harvests, being working on the wall and unable to harvest their own grain. And therefore, which means they have to go out and buy their own grain for their own sustenance, for their own provision of food, for how they would survive. Meaning, this group is having a hard time putting food on the table. It's a big deal. There's a second complaint in verse 3. We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. With the fields unworked, the people had to find ways to buy their food. With the famine on, they had to find ways to buy their food. And that led them to have to mortgage their fields, sell their vineyards, and, and even their houses. With no money coming in and with a harvest that's going to be weak, they had to find ways to feed themselves, to take care of themselves. By doing that, they had to sell the very things, the greatest investment that they have, their homes, their land, their jobs, their businesses, just to survive, to put it out as collateral for loans just to survive. Things are getting tough. The third complaint in verse 4, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So the work in the fields hadn't been done the, and the king hadn't suspended the taxes on the production that was necessary from the fields. Taxes still had to be paid. Persian taxes were, were very severe. It's upwards between about 30%. 30%, pretty severe, and very little of it would come back to, to them. Most of it went into to the capital, back to Susa, back into the storage of the, the king. When Not too uh, long after this, when Alexander the Great rolled in through Persia, he captured 270 tons of gold coins and 1,200 tons of silver. All their taxes were going to the treasury to stay there. Paying taxes stinks, but having to borrow money to pay your taxes has to be worse. And going into debt to buy food to your Jewish brothers is pretty bad. And either way, they were, going, they were getting into some pretty serious financial problems. They're debtors. Is their brothers, their fellow Jewish brothers, were, were their debtors. And they were like loan sharks, charging crazy high interest rates. And if it's the only way that you can turn to survive, where else do you turn? Verse 5, it shows how desperate things got. With no safety net for them, it's quite unfortunate that this would even be an option. Verse 5 again. Now our flesh is the flesh of our brothers. 
Our children are as, our, as their children, which means they now own us. We are virtual slaves to our brothers. They own our flesh and they own our children. They own our inheritances. They own our future blessings. And yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. These loan sharks own them. Everything, including their own children. And who is doing this? Who is doing this to them? To their brothers. To their brothers. It's either starve to death. I mean, it was the, the only options that were placed to them. Things are getting ugly during the building of the walls. Poverty, famine, debt, enslavement, all at the hands of their own brothers. What does Nehemiah do when he hears this outcry? Well, the quickest solution would, would possibly be, let's, let's take a break from, from building the wall. And let's let everybody go back to their homes and rebuild their fields and work their fields as best as they can in the famine to take care of their families, to try to pay some of these debts, and then to come back when everybody's ready so that we can rebuild the wall. But that's not what he does. Because underneath the surface, the real problem wasn't the fields. The real problem wasn't the famine. The real problem wasn't the food. But the real problem was these Jewish brothers who had the means to help these others who were in need, but instead took advantage of the situation for their own profit. And verse 6 tells us clearly how Nehemiah felt. He was angry. A righteous indignation against those who were perpetuating such an evil and sin against their brothers. It's almost like when Jesus walked in the temple and he got, he got angry at the money changers and, the, and those who were trying to sell sacrifices right there in the temple. And Jesus makes a whip and he begins to whip these people out of the temple, chasing them out. Nehemiah got angry. In fact, he got so angry in verse 7, we see that he had to step out and take a breather. So maybe he wouldn't make a whip and begin to beat people. He was angry when he saw the unrighteousness and the injustice, the injustice, excuse me, at the someone at the hand of someone who calls themselves a brother. In verse 7, again, it says that you are exacting interest from his brother, from each of his brother. This is the accusation. Are you seriously charging interest from your brothers? Have we not learned anything from coming out of captivity and living under the thumb of, of the nations? 
Have we not learned anything? Have we not gained anything from this at all? Have we not learned? You know, making money and being a wise businessman is not a sin. Profit is not a sin. However, being disobedient to the Scripture is. And these brothers were being disobedient to the Scriptures. The root issue, the root cause that he is going after here is their disobedience to the Scriptures. So maybe we can believe that in God's providence, he sent that famine. That he brought great hardship upon this one group of people so that these other group of people's sin would be exposed. God is uprooting the people's sin. Here is how they were disobedient to the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 23, starting in verse 19. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. I mean, that says it right there. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of. So do you see how serious, why, why Nehemiah takes this so seriously? We're breaking a rule, we're breaking God's law here. I mean, he specifically says that anything that we undertake within the land that we're taking possession of, he will not bless, in a sense, if we are breaking his law. And we're breaking it, guys! There's a distinction in this passage as well. It says, you may charge interest, however, to the foreigner, but not your brother. Yet I still think the, the spirit of the passage, as well as the Old Testament, is you're still not to oppress them with such interest. To charge interest in any loan for anything to a brother, as the scriptures say here, is a sin. And to remember this in the context of, of people who are just trying to survive as they're coming together to build the wall around Jerusalem. Exodus 22, verse 25 also says, If you lend money to any, to any of my people with you who is poor, so very specifically, to those who are poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Why? Because that's his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I'm compassionate. Well, here in Nehemiah 5, the Lord hears the cries of his people. And through his servant, Nehemiah, he's going to make things right. You have been breaking God's moral law to love your brother and your neighbor. You're not to be like a money lenderer 
but as a brother to them. Nehemiah goes on in verse 8 with, with another charge, and it gets far worse than just lending with interest. Since we've been back, uh, since they've been back to uh, Jerusalem, they already knew that some of their brothers and sisters have already been sold into slavery. And what Nehemiah is saying is, is that we've been trying to buy them back. We've been buying them back and, and freeing them from slavery. Why? Because they are our brothers and they are our sisters. And our people should not be enslaved when we can help it to the nations. But while they were buying them back, there's this group that is taking them and selling them right back into slavery, knowing that the public funds that were being used to buy them back would be there, manipulating the system for their own benefits. Very crony capitalism. Disgusting. These people are getting richer and richer the community is getting poorer, and the poor continue to be exploited, not to mention while the poor, poor are being explo explo exploited, their children were being abused. And this was putting everything at risk. This is truly oppression to totally take advantage of the people while they are down, completely neglecting God's word, which, which God's word protects people. It protects his people from this oppression. It protects people from generational poverty by others. Now, it's, it's one thing that if, it, it's, it's one thing, or it's a completely different thing if a particular person was just stupid and foolish with their money. However, the law still protected the very next generation. So what's taking place here is straight up evil. And they were caught. Their sin had been exposed. And they agreed that their sin had been exposed. And so Nehemiah demands that the people repent and make restitution. The thing that you are doing is not good. I think that was a nice way that he put it. It's a very nice way that he put it. He says, you ought to walk in fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies. You're acting like our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting eventual. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, the percentage of money and grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. All the guilty parties must stop immediately from collecting interest. Give everything back that has been taken for collateral, anything that's been confiscated, every or any debt. Everything must be made right. All the interest may, must be given back. Children, slaves, all must be set Free. Essentially what Nehemiah is saying, it is now the year of Jubilee. It is now time for everything to be made right. Now before any liberal theologians or liberation theology, people could stand up and say, Amen, this is Christianity. Christianity is to be like socialism. And therefore we should advocate socialistic ideas in our society. 
Nehemiah is not stopping free business. Nehemiah is not coercing through the manipulation of the authority through taxes to redistribute wealth from the rich to the poor. No, he is addressing their sin. And he appeals to them, how? By the character and by the nature of God. You have sinned. You have disobeyed God's word. And therefore, you had acted wickedly before God, and you have forgotten the fear of God. You rather love money. So repent. Make restitution to only those you have sinned against. And this is to show who you fear and love more. Well, thankfully, the people's response was yes. We will return everything, and we will stop what we have been doing. They desire to repent. And I say thankfully because they had the ears to hear, and they had the eyes to see their sin. And yet Nehemiah still war warns them sternly in verse 13 about the, the garment being shooken out as that represents how God will shake every man from his house. And, and, and what he is uh, illustrating here is that in their garments, they had little pockets. It would be like a little pocket here. They had the very special things, their money and such. And it would be like as if I shook my shirt out and all my money and everything I own or my wedding ring or whatnot just went flying, gone, lost, and scattered. And he's saying that God will, will judge us if we don't take seriously this word and his holiness. And they amen to all of that is said, and they agree. But what about us? What is our reply? What is our response? How are we to think of these things? Are we even to talk about money? Are we even to talk about how we do business? Are we to even talk about how we are to treat one another? Are we bound by the same rules and the law that the Jews were under? No, we are no longer under this Mosaic covenant. And we're not constrained by the, the Torah, in a sense, by how we deal with our money. So then where are we to turn? And I believe that these principles from the Old Testament are very important. And I think they set for us some wonderful guidelines and principles of how we handle our money. But I want to give you four guidelines from the gospel. First, the gospel shows us how we treat one another. The gospel shows us how we treat one another. This was the big problem, right, in Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, to understand this point, we first need to understand the, the gospel. What is the, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel tells us, number one, first, that God created the universe. God created everything, including all of man. And he said that it was good. And this is important in, in understanding how we treat one another universally. Because every man, woman, boy, girl child is made in the image of God 
and made in his image should be respected and treated with dignity. But man has also sinned. And in the fall, man chose the desires of the flesh over intimate fellowship with God. And man fell, passing now the nature of sin to every man and woman and child born. But the gospel is the good news of how God restores man by sending his son to be the perfect atoning sacrifice for sinners, to be reconciled now with God. We can be reconciled back with God. Those who deserved his just wrath of eternal judgment was placed upon his son. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace with great love through his son, made us alive together with Christ. And so we respond to the gospel by repenting of our sins and putting our faith alone in Christ. Now, if, if this is the gospel, and the gospel is all about what God has done, what God has done, and what Christ has done by grace alone and saving us and loving us and redeeming us, then how do we, by the gospel, the standards of the gospel, then how do we treat one another? How do we treat one another? With dignity to everyone, because we are made in the image of God. But as the body of Christ, as Romans 12, 5 says, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. This is the church and individual members, one of another. We are one body. And therefore, as one body, we are to treat one another as the same members of the body, like family, like brothers and sisters, and even further, like your own body. In Christ, through the gospel, we have been built together as one. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, so let us do good to everyone. Respectable, right? To everyone. Kind to everyone. But especially to those who are of the household of faith. Because of Christ, by grace, as you can, and as the Lord has given to you, then let us do good to everyone. In all of our dealings with, with people in our lives, that we are to be just, and we are to be fair, that we are to be kind as much as possible. We should give smiles, and we say thank you and please, especially in a culture where that is dying. Common courtesy is dying. But as Galatians 6.10 says, especially in the household of faith, do good. Especially in the church, in the one body. We owe one another goodness that doesn't reflect the world, but a goodness that reflects the gospel. A goodness that reflects to whom we fear 
more. A goodness that reflects to a scripture that we believe. The Bible that we believe. Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There it is, the gospel. If God has forgiven us, how shall we not forgive one another? As God has been tender-hearted to us, how shall we not be tender-hearted to one another and kind to one another? Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. Some of us need to take on compassionate hearts. We can be hard sometimes. And we forget to weep with those who are weeping. And we forget kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Verse 14. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. You know, we can go on and on throughout the New Testament with passages like this. But certainly it is very clear how we are to treat one another. And it's the gospel that drives how we treat one another in love. Second, the gospel changes how we see the purpose of money. One thing is for sure is that when we read passages like Nehemiah 5, Nehemiah 5, and we see the exploitation of others for money, I think it's very clear that we understand that some things have never changed. I know I said last week there's times that are changing, but there's some things that never change. And this exploitation continues. I get a thousand spam calls a day from people who are trying to swindle me out of money for something phony. Money corrupts people and makes them do things that they would, that they would uh, I think, generally would never do or never thought they would do. But money continues to corrupt that dead heart. It's why Jesus says the love of money is the root of all evils. It's a warning to those that follow Jesus to be careful to not let money rule our lives. Or to love it because it will corrupt. In Luke 16, 13, Jesus says, No servant, servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
mammon. Mammon is almost anything. You can't serve either. Money is not meant to be served, but it will make you serve it. But it will own you. But God is the one that we are to be serving. God is the one who, who we were created to serve. And as Jesus says, you cannot serve one and serve the other. It's going to be one or the other. And as he says to, as he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God, means give Caesar his money, but give God everything because he is the true sovereign king. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Boy, isn't that a comforting verse. The gospel then, brothers and sisters, in Christ, by his grace, has freed us to love Christ and honor Christ in such a way in all things, including in how we view and use our money. To be generous, to give, to be free with the Lord, what the Lord has given us, to, to use it shrewdly, as Jesus tells us back in Luke 16. To use shrewdly for the kingdom of God, what God has given us to help others. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The burdens that we may bear are not always spiritual. And they're not always heavy lifting and it's not always suffering. But they may be needs financially to give to those needs without interest. And to give to fulfill the law of Christ, which is grace, love, to be free, to understand what God has given us is to be used for the kingdom and to help others as possible. The gospel clearly changes how we see the use of our money. Third, the gospel leads us to repent and, and make right between one another. This is another important principle from our passage, I think, takes place. There was an internal strife that was taking place between one group and another. And absolutely, from the New Testament, we see that brothers are not to be in strife with one another, but they are to be in unity with together and with one another. We will offend one another. We're going to offend one another. And yes, tragically, we can hurt one another very badly at times. And Lord willing, hopefully not in such abusive ways as this, but it's been done. But certainly sin still hurts. And the consequences of sin creates division among one another. But in the gospel, we can make things right. Just like when 
when there was an outcry in Acts chapter 6, when a complaint arose among this new church that there were some Gentile widows that were not being cared for, they were being neglected when some food was being passed out. That gave opportunity for the gospel to help make things right. And they did. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us the frame of how we are to do this. To, to go to them alone. To give the person who has offended us or sinned against us. To give them a, a chance to repent and to make things right. Or so on to the church or, or with a smaller group in the church. To give more opportunity for repentance and restoration to take place before brothers. Before strife comes within the body of Christ to create division. And in certain cases, like we see here in Nehemiah, in the gospel, we see places like uh, the, the story of Zacchaeus. When Jesus goes into Zacchaeus' home, who was a tax collector, who had been extorting money from his brothers for taxes, charging exorbitant amounts of taxes, collecting the difference, and giving Rome the rest. Jesus came and ate with him that day. And in that time together, he saw the, the grace of Christ, the grace and the love of God, and it transformed him as he was with him that day. And what did Zacchaeus do? He quit cheating people. He said, I'm done with this. I found something greater to love. And not only that, but then he gave everything back. But he didn't just give everything back, but what did he do then? He gave four times. You see, that's the gospel. The gospel says, grace, give. Make things right in such a way that will instantly make things right between you and a brother. You see, the gospel not only is the power to change us, it also gives us the grace and the mercy to forgive one another. But it also empowers us to be generous in our repentance and our restitution. And lastly, this is how we're going to close this morning. The gospel commends us to be obedient to Scripture. From Nehemiah 5. How in the world did they get into such a place? How did they get into such a situation where one group of people was oppressing another group of people for money? They neglected God's word. They were disobedient to the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, if we are truly changed, and if Christ and in Christ, and we truly believe the gospel, then we can trust the Bible. And we can be obedient to the Bible, even in these things. How we treat one another, how we love one another, how we bear with one another how we forgive one another, 
and how we give one another to one another, and how we see our money, and how we repent before one another and make things right between one another. The question at hand is, can God's word be trusted? I hope this morning you can say yes. I hope this morning you can say emphatically, yes, God's word can be trusted. I hope this morning you can say that Christ is more glorious and lovely than money. And our love for our brothers and our sisters in Christ is more than money as well. I close with this. A verse that oftentimes is misquoted on little signs that sometimes we put in our house that misses some of the most important parts of the text. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, also steadfast love, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this morning. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your kindness, your grace. And certainly your grace is what drives us in our obedience, in our view of money, our treatment of one another, our obedience to the scriptures. It is by your grace. And so, Lord, help us to continue to believe your word. Believe the word by applying it and pressing it into our, into our lives. That we would be light in a darkened world by how we view these things and how we view one another and how we are good within the church. Father, may you be glorified and Christ, may you be exalted in all that we say and all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.